Friends, welcome back to another episode of Sunday Dive. I have an exciting one uh, for us today because this is episode 51. So I was excited about last week because that was episode 50. So we're like starting a new numerical section, I guess. And that's really exciting. But this should be a fun and a different podcast for us today, too, because I'm coming to you from Southern California, from... um, I, I want to say like my parents' basement, but here in California, we don't have basements. So the equivalent of like the Midwest, oh, I'm coming from my parents' basement, is uh, the garage. Uh, so I'm coming to you uh, from my parents' garage. And we actually, part of the garage has been converted into uh, basically a man cave. And my youngest brother, who still lives at home, <laughs> I almost said, may he rest in peace. <laughs> Uh, it has converted into like a makeshift recording studio. And I did not know this until I got home. Um, but this was really exciting for me because I knew I was going to have to do this podcast. On top of that, I'm joined by one of my good friends, Jesse. Jesse, before we started, I did not ask if I could use your last name. So should we just call you Jesse? Should we tell people who you are? Should we give them your identity or social security number? Jess is good. <laughs> Jess. Okay. That's what I call Jesse. I call her Jess, but I also wasn't sure if like you want the public to call you Jesse. We'll hang in with Jess. Yeah. We'll hang with Jess. Okay. That sounds great. So Jess is one of my good friends. Jess, um, Jess is, well, first of all, Jess is going to be playing like host for us here in a second. So uh, Jess, why don't you tell us how we know each other? Well, it all began. <laughs> In a little birthing center in Palmdale, but we didn't know. Oh, that we're yet. gonna go there. We're gonna go right <laughs> it there. It goes way back. Okay, uh, we met at grad school. Yeah, down in San Diego. Yes, John Paul the Great. Yes, Catholic University. You were studying film, and I was studying theology. And the we had a great merging, melding of our career paths last November because. Because I was at NCYC doing some producing. Yes. And you were at NCYC doing some. Speaking on scripture, because my master's is in biblical theology. So it was the, it was the merging of our field. So while you and the vast majority of the roommates, the other roommates that we've had were like huddled in a corner storyboarding and like crunching numbers for production business classes, I was in my own corner studying Greek and Hebrew and writing reading the papers. Bible incessantly and yes. writing papers. And I'm pretty sure I worked harder for my master's, but I won't wow. hold it against you. Wow. I'm going to let that go because I'm <laughs> your guest. Uh, but um, I, we, I don't want to draw this out too much, but this is a story that is too good to pass up and you hinted at it. Do you want to tell the story of how this like came about, like how we found this out about each other? Well, I think it was the first phone call we ever shared. Yes, I would agree with that. Finding roommates for grad school. Yes. And it came up that you were from California. Yep. And I happened to mention that I was actually born in California. Yes. And I was for sure certain you did not know the small town I came right, from. Right, right. Because I was like, where were you born? And you were like, it's a small town. You wouldn't know it. And I was like, well, yeah, maybe if it's in Northern California. So I said, tr- I think I even said this. Yeah. I think I said, try me. You did. And you said... Palmdale. And I said, you said nothing. Nothing. It was dead silence on the other end. And I thought I had lost you. <laughs> and I remember exactly where I was during this conversation. I was parked in front of my friend's house, sitting in my brother's Jeep Wrangler that I had borrowed from him. 
because it was such a bizarre experience. And I said, and you, you were probably like, hello. And I said, <laughs> I stopped oh, facing. I, I'm still here. Uh, that's where I'm from. And we discovered that we were both born in the same Birthday relatively center. small town and then yeah. in the same hospital. I think it was technically a hospital, but it's a very small hospital that had that I, our parents remember them having like two labor and delivery rooms. So it's quite possible we are actually born in the same room. We'll never know. It's a legend. So I'm pretty convinced that we were supposed to meet younger in life. Yeah. Um, but circumstances changed and then God figured out a way for us to meet later sure. in life. So, and this is all probably so that you can be sitting here right now on Absolutely this podcast. Posting this podcast yeah. for you. Which is called, do you remember what it's called? Sunday Dive. <laughs> Woo okay. Um, at this point, you are going to take the hosting from me. Thank and you for you, that baton. Yeah. All handing right, so fake baton. Let's, uh, shall we jump in? Yep. All right. Do you want to start by reading the gospel? Yes, because that's how I begin always. And our gospel today, we are in the 24th Sunday in Ordinary Time. And our gospel today is from Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. I'm reading from the Revised Standard Version, Matthew 18, 21 through 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began the reckoning, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And as he could not pay, his Lord ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Lord, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the Lord of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But that same servant, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him by the throat, he said, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and besought him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison till he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. Then his Lord summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you besought me and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. And in anger, his Lord delivered him to the jailers till he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. That's Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to 35. Wow. It seems like there's a lot going on there. Can you give us maybe the context of this gospel? Yeah. So I really like giving context for our gospels, especially, um, so most of the time we read chronologically through a gospel. Um, and it really uh, influences and kind of informs. So our gospel follows immediately upon the gospel that we had last Sunday, 
which is part of the ecclesiological discourse. So Matthew's gospel is made up of five sections, which include five discourses. This discourse is the discourse on the church. So keep that in mind as we're working through this gospel together. So um, some things that we covered previously, or I should say that Jesus covered previously in this discourse, um, the idea of if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And then we also got the the, the brief um, but very beautiful image that Jesus gives us. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 and go in search of the one that went away? So there's definitely an idea here in this context and in the ecclesiological discourse of um, what to do when we encounter sinfulness and then what to do um, when we need to forgive someone. And so Jesus, you know, for example, gives us this beautiful image of the one lost sheep and the good shepherd leaving the 99. Also, uh, connection, which gives a context to our gospel that scholars will bring out is from Leviticus. Okay. So Leviticus chapter 19 Verse 17 arguably serves as the Old Testament context for last week's reading, which was essentially about correction, fraternal correction. So Leviticus 19, 17 reads, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason with your neighbor, lest you bear sin because of him. So this idea that um, if a brother sins, we go to him, we reason with them. And even this idea, which played out in our first reading, from Ezekiel last week, that if you don't, you bear your brother's sin. Okay, so that's Leviticus 19.17, which has a great correlation to last week's gospel and that section of the ecclesiological discourse. But Leviticus 19.18, verse 18, the next, the very next verse is one of the most favorite, famous, excuse me, verses in all of scripture, Leviticus 19, 18, you shall not take vengeance or bear any grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Okay. Jesus himself quotes Leviticus 19, 18. And so if 19, 17 was important for last week's gospel and um, verse 18, which follows upon that is the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. There's a connection in a way between Leviticus 19, 18 and our gospel here today, which is very much about forgiveness, right? So Peter is prompted by Jesus's discourse then to ask this question. Peter often is the one who asks questions for the disciples on the part of the disciples. He says, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And then Jesus gives this, this answer. Yeah, and what is the meaning of Jesus' answer there? Because it could get confusing. There could be some ambiguity. So first of all, uh, Peter offers a possibility. He says seven times. And um, there are some rabbinic texts that appear to limit the amount of forgiveness that has to be given. So The rabbis were very much in favor of forgiveness and mercy, but at certain parts in rabbinic literature, we get a feeling, a sense that in order not to hamper justice, forgiveness should have a limit. And in some of the rabbinic texts, the limit is three times 
So here when Peter says seven times, he's already kind of offering something more than has been offered by the rabbis. And seven has, uh, you know, an interesting connotation. It has a connotation of kind of infinity. It has a connotation of covenant. And so I want to start off with that first off the bat, because again, if you've listened to the podcast long enough, you know, I'm always coming to St. Peter's defense because I think he gets shafted a lot in, uh, in how he's portrayed. There's, there's a real case to be made that St. Peter is offering, um, something, something more here. You know, he's saying, Lord, seven times, right? So there is some ambiguity in the text as to whether it is 70 times seven or 77 times. So I can't, I can't recall the details, but for example, um, like in the Hebrew text, which uh, this, this text itself is not in Hebrew, but it's related to another Old Testament text, which we'll pull this out in just a second. And there the Hebrew is 70 times seven. But then if you look at the Vulgate, which is the Latin translation of the Greek Old Testament, St. Jerome translated it 77. Scholars are near unanimous though, that that is, um, that is kind of an aside. So they'll say, regardless if it's 70 times seven or 77 times, they are clear that Jesus is being clear that the answer is infinity. In other words, there is no limit to forgiveness. And I said a second ago when I brought up the Hebrew text that there's a correlation here, a connection here with the Old Testament, and it's very profound. So um, at Genesis chapter four, we get the story of uh, Cain, who, if you remember, is the one who murdered his brother Abel. Um, And then he becomes worried for his own life. So at Genesis chapter four, verse 15, it says, the Lord said to him, speaking to Cain, not so if anyone slays Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. Okay, so God says, Cain, you're going to be safe because I will take vengeance upon you sevenfold if anyone harms you. Now, if you continue reading through the section of Genesis 4, um, we read about uh, Cain's line, his children, and how kind of corrupt they are. And if you read down to Genesis chapter 4, verse 24, you come to Lamech, one of Cain's, uh, you know, grandsons, and he is full of anger and violence and what have you. And he makes this bold statement at Genesis chapter four, verses 24. He says, if Cain is avenged sevenfold, Lamech 77 fold. And many scholars make the direct correlation between Genesis four twenty-four and our gospel here, where Jesus says not seven times, but 77 times. So 77 fold. And the idea is that if in the old Testament and pre the new covenant and pre grace and in the world in sinfulness, there is an infinity of violence and vengeance. 
and anger and grudges, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, then what Jesus is calling for for Christians is the direct opposite of that. Like people, scholars actually think that he's actually addressing Genesis 4.24 in some ways and saying he's going to turn the world order on its head. So now where there's an infinity of vengeance, when Christians come into the world and in the Christian world, in the Christian community, there's now going to be an infinity of mercy and forgiveness. So no limit to mercy and no limit to forgiveness versus no limit to hatred and no limit to violence. And then obviously uh, Jesus is going to back up this idea with a parable. Yeah, that's right. So after all of this comes a parable. So let's talk about that. We hear about some characters. We had we had a king. We had some servants. What do we know about them? So our parable is, um, well, honestly, it's now one of my favorite parables after having done research on this. Um, I was actually doing some research on the plane as I was flying out here. I was getting pretty excited um, because of the numbers, but I have to hold back. So let's set the scene here before we get into the numbers. Um, scholars argue that the king here in question is likely a Gentile. There's a couple of reasons for that. Um, women and children were not allowed to be sold occurring according to Jewish law. So the fact that uh, the king orders um, the servant's wife and children to be sold into slavery indicates to most scholars that Jesus here is talking about a Gentile king. The other reason that scholars believe this is a Gentile king, um, here's the main character or one of the main characters, is because torture is also outlawed in uh, the Jewish law. And we'll, we'll pull that more out when we get uh, later into the text, because you might be going like, where does it say anything about torture? We'll get to that. But nonetheless, Scholars believe in part because of these two reasons that we have a Gentile king here that we're dealing with. And there's an interesting implication here, a little bit of a side note, but still fascinating. This implies that there's no Jubilee year because if we're talking about a Jewish king, there's some sense of hope that the debt of this servant will be forgiven when the Jubilee year comes around which is the, the the year of release, the year of forgiveness um, commanded by God that the Jews would practice. It's not super clear how well they practice that. Um, you could maybe understand that if you have a loan out with someone and uh, the Jubilee year comes around and you just don't get your money back because those loans get forgiven. So interesting little implication here is that there's no hope of a Jubilee year in our story, if the king here is Gentile, which most scholars believe he's probably a Gentile. So let's talk about the servants for a second here, because you can also kind of be like, well, why did the servants owe him money? Because if we really think through the text, and it's really easy to gloss over these things, if we really think through the text, we'd be like, why does the servant owe the king money? So there's a couple of theories that scholars have put forward. One is that the servant or servants, both of them, could be like provincial satraps. Now you're probably like, I don't even know what that means. What is a provincial satrap? These are just essentially officials of the kingdom. 
So they, they're his servants, but they essentially like work for him. If, if you want to think of, you know, our form of government, government here in America, it'd be like, you know, one of those people in the president's cabinet or somebody that works on his staff. But if we had a king and this was a kingdom, they would be considered his servants, right? So this is what we're talking about here, which kind of uh, colors their interactions a little bit, right? And maybe you could see then why the king would maybe lend them money if they're more like, certainly not a colleague, because obviously the king is higher than the servants, but there's more of like a working relationship. Um, To kind of flesh that out a little bit more, some scholars have also um, forwarded the idea that these servants are like, tax farmers or tax collectors. So one example that scholars give is that in Ptolemaic Egypt, so the Egypt of Ptolemy, there were tax farmers, tax collectors who would actually bid on collecting taxes. So they would go to the king, like you get a bid for getting you know construction or something sure. done. They would go to the king and be like, I, I can get you this much taxes. And then whoever had the highest bid would get the job Um, You could understand how that would make a tax collector pretty ruthless. And then you could also see how tax collecting because that could then turn a profit, right? So there's an idea that the king would kind of look the other way a little bit uh, if they collected extra taxes because that's how they would pay themselves. And so it's possible that this servant here is uh, a quote-unquote tax farmer, a tax collector, And he actually owes the king taxes because he's put in this bid for taxes, uh, but he hasn't actually paid the taxes. And so he owes the king money. And uh, we'll get into a second here uh, just how much money that the king is owed. It's a lot of money. Yeah, let's yeah, let's get let's get more deeper into that. It seems like there's a lot of numbers going on with all this tax business. Can you sort of break that down for us? There's a lot of numbers. So I have several pages of numbers in front of me actually. I was, I was this is the most math I've ever done to prepare for a Bible podcast. So uh we're talking about exorbitant amounts of money. So for example, first of all, I should say in um in the original Greek it says that the servant owes the king a myriad of talents. And we use that word still today, myriad, uh, which is fascinating because it has a connotation that we don't fully appreciate and arguably is a huge holdover from ancient Greek. So myriad is a technical term uh, for a, a, a numerical unit. It's actually the largest number in ancient Greek, a myriad. And a myriad is 10,000. So we have a myriad, 10,000, and we have a myriad of talents. Now a talent is the largest monetary unit. So a myriad is the largest number and a talent is the largest monetary unit. So a talent was worth 6,000 denarii and a denarii was a day's wages. So there's where we have to kind of use our imagination a little bit to to kind of understand what numbers we're talking about. But in some ways, because a denarii just signifies a day's wages, it's really easy for us to translate this into our numbers today. So I did a little bit of Googling. 
Um, the median daily income in the United States of America is $175. So if we're looking at um, $175 as one denarii, and then we need to multiply that by 6,000 to come up with a talent, we're talking about $1,050,000. And that's just one talent. Right. We haven't talked about the myriad yet. So one talent is $1,050,000. And just to throw out a number, another number here. So one talent is 6,000 denarii, 6,000 days wages. 6,000 days wages is approximately 16 and a half years worth of working. So if you, if you retire after 30 years, you're talking about half of the income you've ever earned in life is, is just one talent. Wow. $1,050,000. Now, a myriad of talents, because that's what the gospel, our parable of Jesus says, was owed a myriad of talents. So $1,050,000 times 10,000, we get the number in American terms, but as I said, the gospel makes it very easy to translate that, based on the median daily income in the United States, a myriad of talents is $10.5 billion. That's an impressive number. $10.5 billion. So this servant in Jesus's parable, and scholars are pretty unanimous that um, when Jesus would have been telling this story, people would have been like, like they would have gotten the idea that Jesus is literally coming up with the biggest number and the biggest number and the biggest number. Like Jesus has been like, they owed me all that you could possibly owe, or they owed the king. Obviously, there's a sense in which Jesus is associating himself with the king, and we'll get to that shortly. But this servant owed in, in our dollars today $10.5 billion. $10.5 billion. So, that, and that's just the starting point. That's just something that I wanted to let sink in in. So he owes him $10.5 billion. The king finds this out. There's a question you can ask yourself. And as we move forward, um, talking about this gospel, think through these ideas in terms of us and God. So you can ask yourselves, and if you're a astute reader, like a curious, questioning reader, you might already have asked yourself, how in the world did this guy rack up this much debt? How in the world did he rack up this much debt? Because, for example, Josephus, first century Jewish historian, tells us that the annual tax for the region of Galilee and Perea was 200 talents. The annual tax for this whole, this whole area uh, around the time of the death of Herod the Great 200 talents, that's about uh, $210 million. And the annual tax of Judea, Sumeria, and Idumea, 600 talents, about $630 million. So we could ask ourselves, you know, oh, maybe he just had a lot of back taxes. You know, if he was a tax farmer, maybe he just owed him a lot of taxes. But if the annual tax for these huge regions was $210 million, $630 million, how in the world did he 
rack up $10.5 billion in tax debt. So again, reading this with the idea of God and us, how was he able to rack up this much debt? The king just let it happen. And does not God just let it happen? He just, (laughs) if sin is debt, which there's a great argument from the Old Testament and from the scriptures that sin is debt, God lets us rack up debt. He lets us put all our sins on credit. Okay, keep that in mind. $10.5 billion. So the king discovers this, calls him in, says, you have to pay this back. He says, please be patient with me. And I love that he uses that word. Please be patient with me because patience means a willingness to suffer. That's why patience as a virtue is related to patient in the hospital, someone who suffers. So have patience with me because he does not want to be sold into slavery with along with his wife and children, which it was a common thing. And Roman law allowed this for um, someone who was indebted to another person uh, to be sold into slavery. And the idea actually was uh, kind of like a, a bail sort of that um, in the, the person imprisoned obviously could not pay back the, their debt. Right. Right. But, their friends and family who want to see them again, they can work hard to pay back the debt. So this was the idea. You would imprison someone. And then the king here is obviously very serious about it because he's going to imprison this guy as well as his wife and children in hopes that payment will be made. Okay, that's ludicrous. How is $10.5 billion going to be paid? And maybe the king starts to realize this potentially but probably he's just coming from a place of justice. Like, this is just what we have to do. You owe me money. You can't pay me back. Therefore, I'm going to sell you into slavery. Have patience with me. So the the servant is essentially asking him to extend the loan because he doesn't ask for forgiveness of the loan. He just says, be patient with me. I will pay it back. And the king relents, releases him, and forgives his debt probably because he realizes you're never going to be able to pay me back. But then after that great act of kindness, this man does not have what it takes to do the same, right? Right. Something interesting happens. So the tables are turned. It says, in fact, if you're a close reader of the text, that as he's leaving, as he's going out, he comes upon one of his fellow servants. Okay. So not just some stranger that owes him money. One of his, his fellow servants who owes him a hundred denarii, a hundred denarii. Okay. So if, uh, if a myriad of talents is 10,000 times 6,000 days wages, the fact that here he's only owed a hundred denarii is completely different from the 10.5 billion that the first servant owes the king. So a hundred denarii, a hundred days wages, if we go by the median daily income of $175 times a hundred, we get $17,500. That's it. Poultry. Yeah, compared to 10.5 billion. Right. 
$17,500. Now, I do like this number, though, because that's an, that's a fair chunk of change for me, right? Mm-hmm. Jess, fair yes. chunk of change for you? Yep. But when you compare it to $10.5 billion, <laughs> it's like, no way, man. It's not worth it to bend over and pick up the 20 at that point. Yeah, exactly. And yet there's, there is something fascinating here. Like it's okay to commiserate a little bit with the servant, like 17 grand. I mean, that's some really nice house renovations, a car. Uh, you know, a student loan, <laughs> if you want to speak my language. <laughs> He comes across this man as he's leaving after he's had his $10.5 billion forgiven of him and he seizes him. He seizes him, which this was something you were allowed to do. You could bring someone forcibly to court who owed you money. So you could actually like personally, I guess, arrest someone kind of and bring them to court. So he seizes him. This is the idea and has him put in prison. So same idea. This is what you do. Someone owes you money. You call the loan. They can't pay back the money. They get put in prison. So exactly what the king wanted to do to the first servant, this servant does to his fellow servant, puts him in prison. Now, there's a fascinating thing going on here, which I wouldn't have caught. It took me, you know, reading some Bible commentaries to really pick up on this. This fellow servant is put in prison. He's a fellow servant, which means he works for the king. Which means one of the parties that would be most interested in getting this guy out of jail is the king. And if the idea is you imprison someone so that their friends pay back the money, not only is the king now losing out on labor because one of his other servants is being put in in prison, He also is being forced now to use his influence to get this guy released from prison and insult to injury. He arguably is going to be the one, the king arguably is going to be the one to front the money to get this other servant out of prison. And you know who the money is going to go to? The servant he just forgave because that's who the debt belongs to. So if the king wants to redeem this second servant, he has to go to the first servant to whom he just cleared the debt of $10.5 billion and give him the $17,000 so that he can get his fellow servant out of prison. It's ludicrous. It's absolutely insane. And one of my favorite things about this idea, one of my favorite things about this idea is the sense that, and it's even hard to kind of describe it apart from the context of this parable, but a sense that when we hold a grudge against someone or when we withhold forgiveness from someone, we're not just withholding it from the other person. It's not just the other person who's on the line. God is also put on the line. There's a way in which we're not only requiring recompense from the person who injured us, 
but we're also requiring recompense from God. It's as if we say, not only to the other person, you have to forgive me, but we're also in a way dragging God into it and saying, you have to make this person like give me recompense. And even if they don't, this individual doesn't give me recompense. It's your job, God, to give me recompense. It's this, it's this incredible way that Jesus gives the reasoning behind the 70 times seven or the 77, right? There's that ambiguity between the two. Peter says, Lord, how many times do I forgive my brother? Seven times? And Jesus says, not seven times, but 77 times. And then he explains, the kingdom of God is like this. So what is he saying? The kingdom of God is like this king who lets us rack up credit. But then because he is a just king, And he will not practice like this legal fiction where we are evil, but he pretends we're good. He doesn't do that. A spade is a spade for God. And so we have to pay our debts. And yet, though we have debts in the billions and trillions of dollars, he forgives the debts. And it's interesting too that how the debt is to be paid, if you will, is imprisonment. So like if I don't have the money to pay my debt, I, I go to prison. And so how does Jesus forgive our debt? He literally in his person takes on the debt and he clears it completely. And it's for this reason that he goes on to say, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you, which is to send us, deliver us to the jailers till we pay our debt. So also shall my heavenly father do to every one of you, if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And this idea in verse 34, in anger, we shall be delivered to the jailers till we should pay all our debt. Jailer here, I told you I'd get to this. Jailer here, actually a true translation of it is going to be um, is going to be torturer. And so we get this imagery of eternal damnation till he should pay all his debt. Well, remember the debt is $10.5 billion. Is he ever going to pay all his debt? No. And so there's this other idea that... Even eternal punishment is not enough to repay our debt to God. But nevertheless, Jesus has uh, Jesus has taken himself, taken upon himself the debt of sin, uh, put himself in our place that we might be free completely from our exorbitant sins that we may be released from our great debt. 
and they went that we might live live in freedom but but for the sake for the sake that we should forgive others the same what do you say how did they do <laughs> i was in uh, rapt attention there in silence <laughs> soaking it all up great no it definitely sounds interesting it almost sounds like you kind of just end up hurting yourself more if you can't release the other person from their debt in a way that's so. a, yeah that's a really great point um because yeah what does uh <laughs> that is an interesting point because what does what happens to the first servant when he fails to release the other from his debt he is indebted. So yeah, that's a very interesting idea because we can ask ourselves, is that what happens to us? And I think it's precisely that, obviously yeah. in, a, in a spiritual way and not just in the life to come, right? Here, right. we enslave ourselves right. when we uh, refuse to release others from our uh, from their from their guilt, I guess you could say. That's right. interesting. How do you, like, what do you become? You, you become this angry person who can't. Yeah. Let yourself live. Right. You know, for sure. Yeah. Well, this has been very educational for me as well. I'm sure as everyone else listening, do you have any final thoughts you want to bring to the table, Katie? Um, just that, uh, do I have any final thoughts? I was going to say something snarky about California. I mean, you could pray for, uh, pray for the wildfires yeah, here. It's very hazy out there. While I was here, several fires started. Um, because the, the first few days I was here, I think, um, the Los Angeles area, uh, where my family is, I think broke the all time ever heat record. This is true. So where Jess and I were at Jess's house, got up to what is it? 117. I think it was 115. 115. We're closer to Los Angeles. So that's, that's very high for that area. It's extreme. It's unheard of. And some other suburbs of the LA area um, saw, I think we heard 121. Yeah. So anyways, at that point, fires start with almost no difficulty whatsoever. So there's a lot of fires burning here in Southern California. And so you can, you can keep them in your prayers. Um, Yeah. Anything else? I think that's it. Perfect. Well, we are so grateful that you uh, joined us from my brother's man cave in an undisclosed location in Southern California. (laughs) Uh, Just joining us as well. Um, And the bear, the stuffed bear hanging on the wall also. Um, Thanks so much. We'll be back next week with another episode of Sunday Dive, episode number 52. If you enjoyed having a co-host, you can let us know. I'm sure you love Jess. (laughs) It was a pleasure. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, But anyways, I'll be back, just me, myself, and I next week. Thanks so much for tuning in, and uh, we will see you then. 